All right, we're going to return to our, our study of the book of Luke. If you're visiting, this is what we do here. We just come together, we worship God together, uh, give some announcements, sacrificially pool our resources together, and then we just study the Bible. Uh, this is our constitution here. So we're, we're uh, going through the uh, book of Luke at lightning speed. After five months, we're up to chapter 2, verse 8. And actually, before we do that, I want to do one other thing. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. One of the things that we're feeling called to do as we're turning this corner is to uh, uh, part- do more, participate in more kingdom things while we're here. And one of those kingdom things is praying. Uh, we have a unique authority, kingdom people, to influence the world uh, through the power of prayer. God just has made us partners uh, in building the kingdom here, and prayer is one of the central ways we do that. So I'd like us all to join hands with the person next to us on our right and on our left, if there is a person on your right and left. And uh, yeah, you can cross aisles, that's great. And we're going to uh, just pray here, and just in your heart, in your spirit, agree with me as I lead us now in this, uh, this moment of, of corporate prayer. Pray with me. Father, uh, we just thank you, God, that you have called us out of darkness and put us into the kingdom of light. Uh, Lord, you have forgiven us, wiped uh, our, our slate clean through the blood of Jesus Christ, redeemed us, made, you, made us your children, and we give you praise and thanks for that. But Lord, you've also called us to be co-partners with you as you build your kingdom uh, on this world, to bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. And it's an honor to be used by you in that capacity. And we, Lord, know and acknowledge that prayer is one of the main ways we do that. So right now, Lord, as we are together here, uh, we pray for the person on our right whose hand we're holding. We pray for them, Lord God. We pray blessing on them, Lord. We pray that you send out your spirit on them. Lord, we pray for their relationships. If they're married, we pray for their marriage. Bless their marriage. If healing is, is needed in that marriage, bring kingdom healing and wholeness to that marriage. And we pray, Lord, if they're, if they're parents, we pray for them and their children and the relationship there. Lord, let your peace hover on that house. And for all relationships that they're involved in, uh, with their family and with friends and with neighbors, we pray, Lord, that, that, that the shalom peace of the kingdom would, would saturate all of those relationships, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that if there's conflict on any level in those relationships, Lord, that you give this person on our right a wisdom, a kingdom wisdom on knowing how to move forward to bring peace and reconciliation to those relationships. We pray blessing on their finances, blessing on their job, if they have jobs, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that you bring them prosperity, that they may be a blessing to the kingdom and a blessing to others, Lord God. In every way, shape, and form, just bless this person on our right in Jesus' name. And we pray for the, people on, the person on our left whose hand we're holding. Lord, just put your arms around them and love on them and help them to know with an absolute certainty that they are unsurpassably loved because of Jesus Christ. That they, Lord God, are one for whom Jesus died, Lord. We pray for their mind. We pray for their hearts. We pray for their spirit that you would bring kingdom shalom, kingdom peace, kingdom wholeness to their mind and to their heart and to their spirit, Lord God. We pray for their relationships as well, Lord. We pray for their marriages, Lord, if they're married. Lord, bring kingdom wholeness to their marriage, Lord, and, and intensify the love that they have for their spouse. If they're parents, we pray for them and their children and the relationship between the two, Lord God. And we pray, Lord God, for all of their relationships, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or neighbors or, or relatives. Lord, let your kingdom peace flow through them to all those relationships and give them a wisdom. If there's conflict on any level, uh, an awkward uh, difficulty on any level, Lord, give them insight, give them wisdom, we pray, to help them bring the kingdom to those relationships. And we pray for their finances and for their, for their job and for their businesses, Lord. Uh, Lord, bring prosperity on them that they could be a blessing to the kingdom and a blessing to others. And Lord, we together here pray for the person on our right and on our left that you'd open up their minds and open up their hearts to receive the word that's going to go forward right now. Lord God, that it would find fertile ground and it would bear fruit and that they'd leave here more thoroughly committed to the kingdom than they were when they came. 
And Lord, we together pray for our children right now. Lord, we pray that your spirit would just bombard our kids, Lord. Just uh, bombard the workers, flow through the workers, and build your kingdom in those little hearts and minds over there, Lord God. And bless those who are sacrificially serving over there, Lord God. Give them a sense of satisfaction at being a partner with you as they bring forth the kingdom. And for our youth right now, we pray, Lord God, for the worship and, and for the teaching that's going on there. Lord, just saturate them with your spirit. Uh, fan the fire in their hearts, Lord God. Raise up an army of warriors in Jesus' name. Let it be done. Let it be done. And now, Lord God, we just again thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. We just pray an anointing on it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. I had a lady at the end of the last service come forward and just... Um, uh, just said, just thanked me for the time that we had to pray. She goes, you know what? I don't think I've ever had anyone pray for me in my life. And I just felt, so, I got so blessed. Uh, it, it, no one should walk out of here without being blessed by somebody and prayed for by somebody. Yes, yes. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and we encourage you to bring your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read 12 verses here. I want to entitle this, Bear Hug from a Manger. For reasons that may or may not be clear as the message goes forward. Bear it from a manger. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were understandably terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Everyone say, all the people. All the people. Yes. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. <laughs> I love that. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now imagine you're a shepherd, all of a sudden these angels all around you going, oh. uh, When the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, didn't dilly dally, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them and this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. See, they testified. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. They testified, which were just, what, just as they had been told." interesting segment of scripture traditionally read around christmas i was actually planning on getting to it before christmas but the spirit moves in mysterious ways we never quite got to it so now we're gonna have it a couple of points i want us to chew on from this this text and the first point is really a preliminary point uh it's only indirectly related to the main thing i want to bring out of this text but it leads into it and it's just this as i read these passages i try to like uh notice everything and i try to ask questions about everything and I noticed that the, the shepherds were out uh, keeping their flock at night. They were letting their sheep graze at night. And I've heard that a million times, but I've never wondered why. And so I wondered why. Why at night? That seems odd. So I did a little research, which is kind of my job. And uh, it turns out that in the Middle East, uh, that uh, in the heat of the summer... Uh, when it's really, really hot, sometimes it's too hot for the sheep to go out during the day, and so they go out at night when it's really hot, and they let them feed in the nighttime. Which produces this interesting conclusion. Jesus apparently was born in the middle of the summer, in the heat of the summer. Now, that, that among other things, that means that a couple weeks ago when I gave my little spiel about Mary and Joseph being in that cold cave with all the animals. I was wrong! <laughs> but when I'm wrong, I admit that I'm wrong, right? I was wrong. I, 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 not infallible. 
Um, in fact, over the last, you know, 12 years, I, you know, repeatedly I've, have said things like that because I think it's really significant for us to notice that, that the Messiah was born in a very messy situation, not the tidy little thing that we have on our manger scenes, but it was an overcrowded commercial stable uh, with, 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 you know, with unventilated, it would have been uh, manure-filled, and that's the situation that Jesus was born into. And I used to think that being cold was part of that messiness. Now that I know this, I think it's even worse. I mean, think about being, the only thing worse than being in an overcrowded, uh, smelly, manure-filled, unventilated, cold stable is being in an overcrowded, smelly, manure-filled, hot stable in the middle of the summer. Can you imagine that? The stench. So anyways, it was in the middle of the summer. Which then raises this question. Why do we celebrate Jesus' birthday on December 25th in the middle of the winter? Now, here's the little spiel on this. I was going to share this before Christmas, didn't get to it. I'm kind of glad, actually, now, because this could be a downer to some people, uh, and um, I didn't want to ruin your Christmas. Uh, hopefully, by next Christmas, you'll have forgotten this message, but here's... What we know is this, that uh, Christians didn't start celebrating the birthday of Jesus on December 25th until the beginning of the 4th century, early 4th century. What we know is this, that uh, December 25th was already sort of a national holiday in ancient Rome. Actually, in, it goes back to ancient Greece before Rome. Uh, they would celebrate the winter solstice on December 25th. They would celebrate the fall harvest on December 25th. It was a time of festivities and actually it was known for drunken orgies. They'd have 12 days of drunken orgies leading up to December 25th. Which is how, by the way, we get the tradition of the 12 days of Christmas. Isn't that lovely? We also know that uh, in the ancient world, there was a religion called Mithraism, which celebrated the birth of the god Mithra on December 25th. This was one of those ancient deities long, long time ago. There's a myth about a story of this god being born, and they celebrated his birthday on December 25th. And so far as we can tell, approximately 10% of Rome uh, belonged to this religion uh, in the early uh, 4th century. Constantine uh, converted to Christianity, or maybe he just was being strategic with Christianity. But what he did, once Christianity was legalized with the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., he took, uh, to, to create a unified national holiday, uh, he made this, declared December 25th to be the birthday of Christ. So that the Christians and the Mithraic people and the ancient Greco-Romans were all celebrating December 25th for one reason or another, and that's how it became a national holiday. Isn't that lovely? Now the question is this, should that bother us at all? And it does bother some people. But should it bother us? Um, no, okay, we got some people who have an opinion. What if I say it should bother us? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, argue with me? Um, you know, if, if you get uh, Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door, for example, uh, they'll tell you everything I just told you, and they're right, and they'll say, well, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating this, this pagan holiday. Especially because... Over time, even more pagan stuff got attached to it. Most of us had, or at least a lot of us had, these little pagan fertility symbols in our house during the Christmas season. We call them a Christmas tree. And some of us practice that ancient pagan uh, tradition of putting on candles. Uh, we now call them Christmas lights. But, but that comes from a Nordic religion, and it was a way of warding off demons. You put Christmas lights around the fertility symbol to ward off demons, and that will bring you know, uh, fertility to your house. Uh, a lot of areas, a lot of aspects of, of Christmas are really pagan. Should that bother us? And uh, no, my answer is heck no. Come on, don't be a Scrooge. <laughs> look at, look at, look at. What, <laughs> what we got to know is that most, or at least a lot of areas of, of uh, Western culture had pagan origins. Uh, today is Sunday. That means we're supposed to worship the sun on this day. That's why it's called the sun's day. And actually, we do worship the sun. It's just S-O-N instead of S-U-N. Isn't that clever? But, uh, uh, but Sunday is supposed to be the sun's day. Thursday is Thor's day. You've heard of the Nordic god Thor, uh, the thunderbolt god. Well, Th Thursday was his day. Friday was Frigdag. Uh, we worship the god Frigg. Saturday was Saturn's day. And we all use that terminology, but hopefully you don't dedicate that day to that particular god. How something starts and why it continues are two different things. Most of the months, uh, the names of the months of the year that we have, uh, come from uh, Greco-Roman religion. Um, a lot of our practices come from kind of pagan origins. Uh, probably a lot of you, when you greeted one another, you shook hands. How many of you shook hands when you... 
Now, okay, now the question is, why did you shake hands before you were seated? And we would say, well, that's a friendly thing to do. But uh, it, it didn't originate that way. In fact, I love, have you seen Chronicles of Narnia? Uh, the movie, oh, you've got to go see Chronicles of Narnia. I just, oh, it's just great. Well, there's a time when, when Lucy is talking to the little fa- the fawn guy. And uh, she goes, you know, glad to meet you, Mr. Thomas. And she holds out her hand. And the guy who's half, you know, fawn and half human looks and doesn't know what that's about. And, he, and she goes, you're supposed to shake it. And she goes, he goes, why? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> and then he takes it and he just kind of jiggles it like that. Well, here's the explanation for that. Back in the Napoleon Wars, what, the way that you would show that you were unarmed and weren't going to shoot the person that you were meeting is you'd hold out your hand like this and put your other hand like this and you'd shake. And it was a way of saying, I promise I'm, I'm not going to shoot you. <laughs> and hopefully, you know, that wasn't the meaning you had today when you shook each other's hands. Though I guess it's better than saying I am going to shoot you. But see, how something starts and why it continues are two very different things. Now, this leads to a broader point, a rather important point, about how to think about these things. Here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you or judge you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul is saying here is this, that uh, you know, people are going to have different opinions about you know, the, what day should be the Sabbath or what, what we should celebrate, what we should not celebrate, all those sorts of things, what you should drink, what you shouldn't drink, what you can eat, what you can't eat. Paul is, is really suggesting this, that uh, don't let anyone judge you about your convictions on that because a preoccupation with those sorts of issues is really a sign that a person hasn't grasped the substance of Christ. When you get the substance of Christ, you realize that all those issues are shadow issues. Okay, they're not, they're, they're not ends in and of themselves. At best, they're pointers. But a mature faith doesn't get all into that and you know, trying to figure out all that or trying to come up with a mandate about a certain position on all those sorts of things. Here's what he says in Romans 14. Some people judge one day to be better than another. This is the better day. While others judge all days to be alike. Every day is just the same. Then he says, let everyone be convinced in their own mind. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. If you're going to observe a special day, fine. Observe it to the Lord. If you're going to abstain from observing a special day, fine. Abstain to the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is this, is love God, honor God, and and follow your conscience. And people are going to have different assessments on that. What's the right thing to drink or eat or what days are special or whatever. Whatever you, you, you come to the conclusion on, fine. But we're not to be making that into a mandate. Uh, you know, it's kind of an absolute rule uh, that all good Christians follow and all those who don't follow are kind of uh, suspicious with it. So that's kind of the assessment of Christmas. If you don't want to celebrate Christmas because of its pagan origins, God bless you, Scrooge. Uh, you know, fine. <laughs> you know, I, 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 fine. But don't look down on those who do. It's a good time to, to celebrate some stuff. And it helps the economy enormously. Now, now some people, and this is getting closer, believe it or not, to the text that we're going to be talking on. Some people go to the opposite extreme. Uh, they're so into Christmas that uh, they want to fight for it and, and uh, you know, make sure that, that we, we keep it Christmas. And, and, and they're, they, they really are bothered by the secularism of, of, of Christmas and, and things of that sort. Some people were, uh, there's actually, a, I guess, a petition that was circulating uh, to the president because he signed his cards, Happy Holidays, rather than Merry Christmas, and they thought that was a concession to secularism. So they're all mad about that. I had one lady in December, uh, you know, suggest to me with, with a certain amount of consternation that, uh, uh, I, you know, why don't you shepherd the flock on these, on the Christmas wars. That's what they were calling these Christmas wars. You know, about keeping, you know, uh, Christ in public places and and things of that sort. And so, uh, let me say a word about that. Um, That's not on my front burner either. And and here's why. I mean, there's kind of this idea that once upon a time, back when we were a Christian nation, we used to celebrate Christ at Christmas, and it was kind of a national Christ holiday. And those were the good old days, and so we need to go back to the good old days. Historically, as it's good to get a little historical context, historically, Protestants especially have had a, a, a significant degree of reservation about Christmas. 
precisely because of all of its pagan associations, which it has tended to keep throughout history. In fact, did you know that uh, there was uh, a period of time back in the founding of America where, uh, where Christmas was outlawed? The Puritans especially, they thought it was just pagan and we should outlaw it altogether. And in London, it was outlawed for, for, for a period of time because it was always associated with, you know, uh, uh, drunkenness and, and brawling and all these sorts of other things. And so Christians have, have always been worried about associating Christ with that, you see. Um, on top of that, uh, today there's, there's um, you know, there's this whole commercialism that, that comes in and, and people get, you know, do you really want to associate Christ too closely with that? Actually, the idea of Christmas being a family day only began to arise in the early 19th century when some folks got an incredible marketing idea where they said to get people off the streets and end this brawling and for, you know, kind of a, making a little bit of money, uh, let's take this Santa Claus idea, which was kind of a minor little tradition that had been there for a number of, of centuries. Most people didn't know about. But they took Santa Claus, they made him into this big jolly guy with a pipe who rides a magical uh, sleigh with magical reindeer, and he goes down chimneys and uh, gives presents to kids. And that kind of puts pressure on parents to be the Santa Claus. And some have argued that this was the best marketing idea in history, and I am inclined to agree. But that's when Christmas became kind of a family holiday and this, you know, it was reinvented. The question is this. Uh, it's now a consumer frenzy and how invested should we be to make sure that Christ is associated with that? Now, I'll tell you that I think it's as silly as all get out that you can't say Christmas in certain contexts. You know, everyone gets their special holidays. Why can't we? I think it's silly. But on the other hand, it's not going to be on my front burner to make sure that people associate this kind of consumer frenzy, along with all the other pagan elements that are there, with the real Jesus. You see what I'm saying? What, I, what is on my front burner, what I'm very passionate about, is this. I want, to make sh I want to, rather than reinforcing the association of Jesus with all of that, I want to be able to communicate that the real Jesus isn't about that. Because one of the problems we kingdom people have in this culture in particular, is precisely that Jesus is far too much associated with, if not at times reduced to, this kind of mass consumerism. Jesus is associated with civic functions and nothing more than civic functions. And Jesus is associated with keeping certain holidays or not keeping certain holidays. And Jesus is associated with, with promo promoting certain uh, nationalistic agendas. In other words, Jesus is in our culture, and this is one of the main problems that we confront as kingdom people. Jesus is associated with little more than a symbolic civil function. It's part of a civic religion. And what I want to be able to show people is that the real Jesus isn't about that. The real Jesus is about this. It's about having a real, not symbolic. Uh, uh, following Jesus is about having a real relationship with a real God through a real Savior who brings about real transformation in and through our life. Following, following the real Jesus isn't about what holiday you keep or don't keep or what you call a particular holiday. It's not about promoting certain civic functions or certain gatherings or promoting the, the American way of life or the capitalistic way of life or anything of the sort. It's about having a heart that's fully surrendered over to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's about surrendering your mind and surrendering your life and surrendering your dreams over to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, following the real Jesus is about putting him first and foremost in your life. Following the real Jesus is about living with intentionality in all that you do. And that intentionality, that purpose, that meaning uh, comes from God and causes you to live significantly upstream in the culture we find ourselves with. Following the real Jesus... It's about getting increasingly free from the indoctrination of our culture that says you never have enough. Uh, it's, it, it, following Jesus is to know that you can have more than enough. You've been given more than enough. More than enough joy, more than enough peace, more than enough power for, for, for living for him in this world here and now. Following the real Jesus is about swimming upstream in this culture where you live, you commit to living each and every day of your life in radical, self-sacrificial love, replicating Calvary to all people at all times. That's following the real Jesus. Amen. Amen. And far from being reduced to promoting certain civic functions, following the real Jesus is about being completely invested in a kingdom that is not of this world and whose faith 
conflicts with the civil religion of this world in every way, shape, and form. And believe it or not, that is what this text that we read this morning is all about. Let me show you how that is. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, Luke uses a, a, a bunch of terminology that really comes right out of the civil religion of the Roman Empire. The civil religion of the Roman Empire was centered on the emperor, the worship of the emperor. This is what all decent citizens in the Roman world were supposed to, be, supposed to participate in. So it was customary in the ancient Roman world. Um, it goes back to about the first century before the time of Christ. It was customary to refer to the emperor as Lord. It was customary to refer to him as Savior. He saves us. When Caesar Augustus was born, they sent out a, a decree proclaiming the good news that Caesar, our Lord, is Savior of Rome. Um, and, and, and that became kind of the, the tradition of the, the civic religion of Rome in the ancient world. When, it, when a, the son of an emperor was born who was going to inherit the throne, they proclaimed the euangelion, the good news, the exact term that Luke uses in this passage. And when the emperor would go and, and lead a conquest, when Rome would expand, they would proclaim the good news. They would sometimes send out choirs to announce glad tidings, the term uses, of good news, the term uses. And we even have in the birth of Christ a choir doing the announcing of the glad tidings. It was the angelic host. But all of this directly parallels the civic religion of the time. When the son of a king was born, uh, the dignitaries would come and pay homage to this newborn king which is what the shepherds are invited to do. Luke very intentionally uses the language of the civic religion of his day to announce the birth of Jesus Christ. But what is amazing, and this is intentional, is he uses those terms with an entirely different meaning. And in this way, he's showing that the kingdom of God is going to undermine and subvert the civic religion of the world, as well as the kingdom of the world. Let me bring out a couple of key points in this. First, you see how Luke is undermining the civic religion of the Roman Empire by the fact that he has angels, the choir of angels, announce the good news of the newborn king to shepherds. Whereas in the world, when important people do important things, they invite important people. When the king of kings come, comes into the world, he invites shepherds. Shepherds were considered, shepherds weren't, weren't disreputable, but, but they were on the lower end of the social strata. They, were, they did the kind of menial tasks. They weren't important people. But when the king of kings shows up, he bypasses all the dignitaries, and he goes to these, these shepherds. In the world, when important people do important things, only important people come, which is why most of us have never been invited to something that was politically or socially really, really important, have we? Some of you maybe have. But, but usually, we're not the types, we're kind of the ordinary folks, and we don't get invited to have supper with the president and those sorts of things. Although I did have breakfast once with, with I just must say, uh, you know, <laughs> Bill and, and Hillary Clinton, I had breakfast with them once. It's true, it's true. It's, it. <laughs> they were 10,000 yards away, you know, but I saw them eat. I saw them eat in person. I once had... Uh, I once had uh, supper with uh, uh, Tim Pawlenty, Governor Tim Pawlenty. Great guy. Um, now, that was long before he was ever governor, but I did have. Still, I get some points. I, I'm important. I shook Jesse Ventura's hand. Uh, we had him over here to do some meeting, and, and uh, yet they, I haven't watched it since. Oh, no. Okay. But I haven't been invited to very many important functions because I'm not, in terms of this world, a very important person, and neither are you. But you know what? What this gospel is telling us. <laughs> are you going to fight me on that one? <laughs> oh, no, for all I know, President Bush is in the auditorium someplace. You know, there are exceptions, but the most of us just don't rate really, really high on the social totem pole. But see, the good news is that this king comes to shepherds. He comes to shepherds. Uh, it, 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 it's like, not, and not, not that he's purposely ostracizing the important people of the world, but he's got a heart to include the shepherds. Those who thought they were on the outside of the social system find themselves on the inside. You see, and that's why throughout Jesus' life, uh, what's his main crowd? 
It's not the muckety-mucks and the hot shots and the power brokers of the world. It's these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these drunkards and these fishermen and, and the, the average folk. Uh, the, this king gravitates towards, towards us average folk. At the very least, you see that he collapses the social system of the world. And see, if we internalize that, our job is to replicate Jesus' DNA in our life in every way. That's how we build the kingdom. And it means this. We, too, must um, uh, have it in our mind that social strata counts for zero. Uh, how rich you are or how unimportant you are, how poor you are, how important or how unimportant, just matters nothing in the kingdom of God. And we've got to root out of our mind any of that sort of social stratification because we're following this king who, when he is born, he invites shepherds. Whoever you're talking to, whoever you happen to come in contact with, or whoever you see, what kingdom people need to know is this. They have got more dignity than all of the political clout in the world. They've got more dignity than all the riches of the world could ever get them because they are a person for whom Jesus paid an infinite price, and that makes them infinitely worthwhile. And our one job in life is to communicate that, 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 that to them. Uh, wherever you are on the social strata is utterly irrelevant. The king invites you to his birth and now invites you into his kingdom. And we need to reflect that in every year of our life. I was uh, asked to help out on an interview, uh, a phone interview, where they were, uh, they wanted a commentary, which I wouldn't do, but, but I'll do it here. A commentary, I'm a little paranoid of radios these days, but they, they wanted a commentary on, um, on uh, apparently there was a church in the Twin Cities, we don't need to mention it, but they were selling front row pews uh, for their Christmas service. Um, and it, like $1,000 to sit up front, which of course only the rich people could give, and so the poor people are going to be sitting in back. And I, I would just say that I wouldn't do that. Um, that's, you know, James specifically says, don't give a privileged position to those who have wealth. Because in the kingdom, we need to know that a person's value and a person's intrinsic worth has got absolutely nothing to do with anything of that sort. Yeah. Amen. And so Jesus invites the shepherds, and that says a lot. A second thing here about this passage is that Jesus, he, he, he tells the shepherds, uh, the, the angels tell the shepherds, here's the sign, here's the sign. Uh, you'll find a baby in a manger, wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger, which is a feeding trough, which means you're going to find this baby in a stable. Now, when the angels say, here's a sign to you, they're... In the Greek, signa is the word. We get the word signature or signify from it. It doesn't just mean, oh, here's what you're supposed to look for. This will tell the right baby from the wrong baby. Because chances are, you know, in Bethlehem, a town of 300 people or so, there's only going to be one commercial inn and therefore only one commercial stable. And there's not going to be a whole lot of being, babies being born there that particular night. Uh, you go to the one stable, you're going to find the baby. The point here isn't to say, of all the babies in the stable, here's the one to look for. Uh, rather, what it's saying is, that, that uh, the sign is sort of the indication not only of which baby it is, but the kind of baby and the kind of king and the kind of reign this baby's going to have. It's the signature of God. God signs his signature in a feeding trough is, is, is what the passage is saying. And so this also contrasts sharply with the kingdoms of the world. Because when Augustus' son is born, he's born in riches, he's born in power, he's born in luxury. He's born in a big bed, not a feeding trough. And when he reigns, he reigns from a magnificent throne, a king's chair like a king ought to have. But Jesus, see, he, he lays in a feeding trough, and he's going to reign. All of his reign, all of his ministry, everything he's about has a feeding trough uh, uh, quality to it, an outcast quality to it, a lowly quality to it. And what it's telling us is this. The signature, the sign of a person being a king in the world is that they've got power and they've got the riches and they can get their way. They rule over others. They exercise power over others. But this king, though he's a king, though he's Lord, though he's Savior, he's going to rule under others. He's going to have a ministry where he rules from a feeding trough. Uh, he's going to have a rule where he's siding with the outcast. His, his, his reign is not one of exercising power over people, but exercising power under people as he builds his kingdom one heart at a time. Uh, 
And he does it in a feeding trough kind of way. He does it by being lowly, by being humble, by serving, and ultimately by dying for people. And so also, kingdom people, we who have surrendered our life to that Lord and that Savior, our job is to reign like that. Our trust is not to be in who, in who or what has got the power over others. Uh, there are some who, who exercise power over others better than others, but we as kingdom people are to know that the hope of the world doesn't lie in who's running the show by world standards. The hope of the world doesn't lie in what laws are getting passed and in what political party is in charge on whose army is winning or whose nation is being advanced. You can think what you want to about all of that. But as kingdom people, we know that the, the hope of the world and the only hope of the world is that the love and the power of Calvary, that kind of love and Savior, that, that love and power is going to transform the world one heart, heart at a time. And it's our job as kingdom people to replicate that. That Hiroshima bomb of, of, of power under that exploded on Calvary. The Hiroshima bomb of God's outrageous love is replicated in our lives. And the reverberations flow to us and then through us. And that is the hope of the world. Amen. Only when that happens, to the extent that that happens, will the world be brought into alignment and will peace happen in this world. Which leads to my third point. And that is this. It's found in verse 10 when the angel says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, Luke is intentionally contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world. When Caesar Augustus is born, they announce good news. And then when Caesar Augustus wins a battle, they announce good news. When Caesar Augustus goes on a campaign or passes a new law that, that uh, people think is advantageous, they announce the good news, sometimes with choirs. But see, that good news is only good news for Romans. If you're a non-Roman, then everything that's good news for Rome is bad news for you. You don't benefit by Caesar Augustus' advances. Rather, you come into slavery because of Caesar Augustus' advances. And this taps into the very structure, the DNA of the kingdom of this world. It is built on an us-them mentality. It's built on walls. It's built on a win-lose sort of thing. For my nation to win, some other nation, whatever nation opposes me, has got to lose. For my team to win, your team has got to lose. For my business to succeed, your business, if it's in competition with my business, has got to lose. That's just the way it, it, uh, it works. For my political party to win, your political party has got to lose. It's in the very fabric, the very structure, the DNA of this world that is predicated on an us-them, win-lose, tit-for-tat sort of mentality. Which is why, and the whole thing, of course, is driven by self-interest. It's in my self-interest and the interest of my tribe to beat your tribe, to beat your team, to outdo your, 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 your business, which is driven by your self-interest. That's in the very fabric of this fallen world. And that's why conflict and violence is woven into the very fabric of fallen human society. Which is why I just said, the hope of the world doesn't lie on tweaking that. It lies in a radically different way of doing life, which is the Calvary way of doing life. This conflict even bleeds over, of course, into religion. In fact, it's intensified in religion. Because religion gives it divine authority. So now you've got Muslims over in Iraq killing other Muslims over in Iraq as well as other people. Uh, they're all Muslims, but they have different ideologies and different beliefs and different traditions. So the way you get your way is by trampling on those who oppose you, and that's what's going on over there. Uh, and then over in the Middle East, we've got uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish-Palestinian thing, and the Jews against the Muslims, the Muslims against the Jews. But it's hardly limited to them. Because in other areas, at different times, you've got the Muslims versus the Christians, and the Christians versus the Buddhists, and the Buddhists versus the Sikhs, and the Sikhs versus the other forms of Hinduism that are out there. And then within Christianity, traditionally, you've got the Protestants killing the Catholics, and the Catholics killing the Protestants. And, and the, the merry-go-round goes, the merry-go-round of carnage goes round and round and round. It's just that now they do it, you know, in Jesus' name, or in Allah's name, or in Shiva's name, or the name of some kind of de deity, which gives it all the more ferociousness. But see, I want us to see that that's built in the fabric of this world. Good news is always tribal. It's always individual. It's always self-centered in the structure of this world. But when Jesus is born, and this is beautiful, he says this is good news for all people, which means this good news doesn't have walls to it. This good news isn't built on an us-them uh, mindset. 
This good news doesn't have fences. The kingdom of God doesn't have parameters. Rather, this good news uh, gives a bear hug around the whole human race. And God says, it's all, the good news is for all of you, and I declare you all to be mine. Uh, the, the good news is, is not delineated according to uh, prototypes and ideologies and nationalities. The Bible's emphasis, and this, by the way, is why I say it's a bear hug from a manger. The, the Lord who reigns from a manger, it gives a bear hug around humanity. Some of the passages where the Bible emphasizes the universality of this message are astounding. I'll just give you two, and i got to give those pretty quick. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, look at this. Paul said, For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Isn't that interesting? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as one man's trespass, that's Adam, led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's, Adam's, disobedience, the many, or the word could mean the multitudes, were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the multitudes will be made righteous. Now that's, and we just sang a little earlier, someday every knee will bow, someday every tongue will confess. Now, here's the thing. I mean, that's wild. Because if you take these passages in isolation and read them to take their surface meaning, it looks like he's saying everybody's going to eventually be saved. Now, we always need to be balanced, right, in how we read the Bible. And you've got to look at every verse in light of all the other verses. And we find plenty of other verses that warn about, about hell, and that, that warn about, about punishment. So we've got to balance all this together. But clearly these verses express God's heart. They express, they're almost like statements of faith on the part of God where God is saying, I'm declaring that you're all mine. As all of you were in Adam, I want all of you to be in me. I got good news for all of you. I want to embrace all of you. I'm going to spill the blood of Jesus Christ for all of you. I want my grace to come to all of you. The good news is for all. If you were once in Adam and we all were, God's God's declaration is he wants you in Christ. Now, you have the free will to opt out of that if you want. God doesn't want a kingdom of Stepford wives, and so you can say no to it. And if you do, that's what the Bible calls hell, uh, because you're declaring war on uh, the one who is life itself, joy itself, and peace itself, which means you're choosing a way of life that will lead to lifelessness, joylessness, peacelessness. The Bible calls that hell. You can do that if you want to. But it doesn't change the fact that the good news is for you. The good news is for all. God's got a bear hug around everybody. It'd be kind of like this. Let's suppose, hypothetically, of course, that I found out that we all won the lottery, every one of us, and I'm announcing it here this morning. Every one of you individually won the lottery. And so you're all going to get $30 million individually. And I want to preach a sermon on tithing. (laughs) But that solved some problems, wouldn't it? Now look at it. You all have... Won the lottery, you got $30 million. Now, you can say, if you want, no thanks. You know, I, I would rather just, I, I don't want $30 million. I can't stand your $30 million. What, are you trying to oppress me and shove $30 million down, down my throat? Like some people feel like with Christianity. Oh, yeah, you, you just want it. Whatever, for whatever reasons you decide that you don't want the $30 million, you can do that. But it doesn't change the fact that the $30 million is for you. Uh, I got good news for you. Don't reject it. Uh, There's $30 million. You can walk away from here rich. So also God is saying, I got good news for all of you. I love you. Uh, I'm doing every, I've done everything that could possibly be done to be in relationship with you. I got a bear hug around you. The love of Calvary encompasses you. As all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. And, And he declares that, and that's what he's moving towards. And as long as there's any hope at all in your existence, the hound of heaven is going to be chasing you and hugging you and trying to get you to say yes to his generous offer and join the kingdom of God. Amen. This is the good news. It's for all people. It doesn't, it's not just for the Romans, it's for the non-Romans. And it's not just for the Americans, it's for the Iraqis. Right? And it's not just for the whites, it's for African Americans, it's for the Latinos, it's for the Koreans. Uh, it, it, it's for every people group that is out there. It doesn't know any nationalistic or ethnic uh, distinction. And whatever your situation is, it's for you. The good news is for you. No if, ands, and buts. If you were once in Adam, which means if you've ever sinned, then this is good news for you. And I think that pretty much covers all of us. Whatever you're struggling through, I got good news for you. 
the, the, the one who reigns from a manger has a bear hug around you. Whatever emotional troubles you're having, whatever relationship conflicts you're having, whatever psychological problems you're having, whatever financial problems you're having right now, uh, you know, whatever marital issues you're going through right now, or whatever you're feeling right now, I got good news for you. Whatever you've done in the past, I don't care how heinous, how shameful, how unspeakable it is, and maybe there are people here who consider themselves to be in that situation, I got good news for you. It just doesn't matter right now because the one who reigns from manger has got a bear hug around you. You know, if, you, if you're rich, I got good news for you. And if you're poor, I got good news for you. Uh, you know, if, if you're straight, I got good news for you. If you're gay, I got good news for you. If you're a drug addict, I got good for news for you. If you're an alcoholic, I got good news for you. Whatever your tendencies are, whatever your struggles are, whatever your issues are, I got good news. That the one who reigns from the manger, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the lover of your soul, has got a bear hug around you. He's just saying, come on, I, I, I want to be closer to you. And you're all, the only thing you've got to do is say, okay, quit, quit pushing him away and let him win your heart and surrender your life to him. Our job as kingdom people is to replicate that in our life, individually and collectively. And now I want to speak to Woodland Hills Church. Our job when we come together and then when we go to our neighborhoods and businesses and whatever, our job is to communicate as clearly as we can that manger bear hug. To let people know that, you know what? You're an insider, not an outsider. Now, they still may believe they're an outsider. They may not want to be an insider. Who knows what meaning that has for them? But we need to communicate in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our words, and in our deeds that God has a bear hug around you. I got good news. We don't have bad news. It's good news. It's great joy. Here's what's true. The creator of the universe is passionately in love with you and has a bear hug around you. And to communicate that you're an insider, not an outsider. There's no walls here. That's why there's just no room. This is how we collapse that omniscient tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we judge. You know, we're always like deciding who's in and who's out and where they're at. It has no role here. You're here. That's wonderful. God's got a bear hug around you just like with me. You see, we can just collapse that judgment stuff right now and just give an embrace. Wherever the person is, whatever you see, whatever their background, whatever, to give that bear hug. When we come together here, I would like us to lock this in and remember it. Let's practice that. Right here. Let's just kind of practice that. To go out of our way to make a person feel like they are included here. That, that, that this is, you know, this is a kingdom gathering, and therefore it's a gathering with wa- without walls, and so everybody is an insider. Because many people might come here and feel like an outsider. And our job is to convince them that you're an insider. See, you know, people who come from the thinking of the world might be doing all sorts of social stratification. Is this the social strata I, I fit into? Is this the ethnic group I fit into? You know, is, is this the religious group I fit into? And people might think, well, you know, I, I'm not the, the majority ethnicity here, so I don't belong. Or people might think, well, you know, I, 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 I'm absolutely poor, and it looks like most people here drive cars, and I don't think I belong. Or a person might be thinking, gosh, given my past, and I'm not very religious, I don't think I belong. Because mistakenly, they think this is a place that you can delineate in terms of social strata or, or religion or anything of the sort. And our job is to say, no, this isn't any of that. That's world stuff. This is the kingdom, and the kingdom includes all. And so we go out of our way, especially for those who maybe are, feel like shepherds in relationship to Caesar Augustus. They feel like outsiders. They wonder, I'm not really here. Go out of your way and give a bear hug. Now, I'm not speaking literally physically because some people have boundary issues. Fine. Uh, but, but in how we treat people and how we speak to one another, not just here, of course, everywhere, but let's practice it here. Spending time, making eye contact, Paying attention to the people that in the world maybe you wouldn't pay much attention to. Because we collapse all that variation that's out there, and we say in the kingdom, we're all in Christ. As all we're in Adam, all are in Christ. That means you're in Christ. That means you have infinite worth, which means I'm honored to talk to you. And however God leads that, that situation. I, I want to do one more thing here, and, would you, and that's just would you close your eyes and pray. Is anyone here who has never said yes to the bear hug? Uh, I want you to know that God considers you an insider, but here's the thing. You have got to say yes to that. And this isn't a magical escape hell little trick we're playing. Uh, This is about committing your life, surrendering your heart genuinely over to him. If you are here this morning and would like to do that, I feel compelled right now to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? And and, uh, I just want to pray with you here. Raise your hand up here, several people, to my left. In the middle there, wonderful. In the back there, wonderful. 
Okay, yes, over there. Oh, wonderful. Just raise your hand. God sees it even if I don't, but I'd like to see it. Over to my right, your left, there's a number of people. Just keep on praying. In the center here, in the back. Wow. Wow. Okay, now, th th this is wonderful. This is wonderful. You're just saying, I surrender. I surrender. You maybe don't even know clearly what that's going to mean or what it's going to entail. The main thing is that you have a heart right now that wants to turn over the reign of your life to the one who reigns from the manger and, 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 uh, and surrender to him. Okay, wonderful. I don't know if I saw everyone's hand or not, but there's a number of hands that went up. I want you to pray this prayer with me. And this isn't magic again. It's like taking a wedding vow. You're committing your life to him. Don't do it unless you really mean it. Maybe you're not ready. That's okay. But uh, if you do, if you are ready, you just surrender the core of your life over to him. And the Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we want to confess that out loud. Pray out loud this prayer, and we're going to join with you because we're all part of this. It's a community thing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are God and have rightful ownership over our life. And we confess that we have gone our own way and been Lord of our own lives. We confess that we're sinners in need of a Savior. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me and come and live within me and help me by your grace to live for you completely the rest of my life starting right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's gorgeous. Yes. Yes. Good, good. Now, if you were here this morning and you prayed that prayer, or maybe you didn't, but you'd like to find out more about it, I want to implore you, encourage you to do this one thing. As we're dismissed, up here to my right and your left, there'll be a person who just wants to give you some free literature to start learning how to walk with God. What it is to be a kingdom person. This isn't about going to church once a week. Believe me, it's about a whole lot more than that. Consider joining that Alpha uh, uh, program. I think we have some more information about Alpha Group out there. But come up here to my right and your left and get some information. Where the prayer teams come forward, and if you're here this morning and have any need that you'd like to have prayed for, we invite you to come forward and spend some time in prayer. Otherwise, spend time with that bear hug thing out there. Love one another, then go out and love the world and build the kingdom thereby. God bless you. We love you.